Hi everyone, welcome to another live recording of the Cheeky Natives. We've just been on a roll lately, as per usual, and we're bringing you another very, very awesome guest. His name is Khotsofeti Chikanya. He did a moment. Also known as Khoti for those who are tongue-tied and are taking this from the blurb. He is a graduate of the University of Oxford, having completed his Master of Policy public policy degree in 2017, a Mandela Road scholar and one of the male and guardians top 200 young South Africans, and the former national president of Inkulu Free Aid, a non-partisan youth organization focused on deepening democracy and enhancing social cohesion. He is also the author of Breaking a Nation, Breaking a Rainbow and Building a Nation, which is a first-hand account of the university protest that gripped South Africa between 2015 and 2017, widely known as Business Fall, and also our next guest on today's episode of The Cheeky Natives. Welcome, Kofi. How yeah, are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So, obviously, there's a controversy around this name thing. So, for purposes <laughs> of this recording, what do we call you? You can call me Rihotso Fete, unless you are going to get tongue-tied, then just go Rihotso. It depends okay. on how you feel. Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't like that caveat, <laughs> So... Obviously, if I say Hoti, then I'm just going to feel the judgments emanating from everybody because I was tongue-tied. But it's like one of those names where if you just read it the way you see it, most people get it right. Yeah. If you don't hesitate. Also, there are no excuses, right? So if you can say Tchaikovsky, you can say Rikots of it. How do you say Tchaikovsky? Uh, let it go. Assimilation. Assimilation. So obviously, um, as Alma has said, this book is about uh, the politics behind Fees Must Fall as the subtitle of your book. Yeah. Um, her and I both read it with keen interest. It seems we've been like doing these uh, Fees Must Fall books a lot. Um, just previous it's Tuesday. <laughs> we uh, had a launch of We Are No Longer At Ease, yeah. uh, a book that you said here. Have you, you, did you finish reading it? So I got halfway through, Okay. and then I left it on the Hull Train bus. And like you said, there's someone reading it right now who's probably having a grand old time. Um, but the, by the nature of it, there's some pieces that I had read before. Okay. Um, and there were some articles that I was like, oh, yeah, I remember reading that a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, some have aged really well, some haven't aged as well, um, but it was interesting. <laughs> so I think before we start the podcast, uh, we know that a certain professor at a certain university has released a certain book which speaks about a certain <laughs> issue. And um, oh, as someone who's also written on this certain down. issue, what are your feelings about <laughs> this certain professor writing up on this certain topic? Also in addition to that, yeah. right, I think the talk on all was on 702 today. Um, and this was a discussion that came up about the sort of accepted viewpoints, right? And I mean, I'm just, you know, we need to have a return to Amazon in this country. And I just, I cannot, like, I don't know how to translate that. But we need to just have a return to just a sense of Amazon. So when you, when you are, and I, I just can't even translate that because I'm, I'm very sorry to note that English is a language which is often just lacking in the nuances that are needed to understand um, vernacular languages, right? So yeah. ask a friend to ask to help you out if you listen to the podcast. But how are you the vice chancellor of a university at a time when fees must fall and participates in having really police brutality exerted and I mean private security being brutal against students and then have at the your enti- command. At your command yeah. and at your directive and then have the entire audacity and liver and go and whatever English words exist to describe this lack of amatoni and then write a book. You know, and I just have feelings about it's not about the validity of perspectives. I think that sometimes we don't stand on the right side of history and we must have moments of introspection and gather ourselves and ask ourselves what we've contributed to things that have happened taking place. Yep. But also what 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 history on reflection will look like for you. Maybe you didn't need to write that book. I think a fullest could have written a book and you've now taken away the book deal. From a fallist, you know, you've taken away the attention from a fallist, and, 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 and maybe we just didn't need your book. Maybe we just need you to do your job and transform higher education. And that's what I used to say about my alma mater, and I'm going to leave it at that, because, wow, a book, wow. So, I mean, I, so I haven't read the book yet. Um, Don't do it. <laughs> so, there's an interesting discussion that's happening, and I, I have, like, three views on a book that I haven't read yet, and the one is... It doesn't make sense. So imagine you're a CEO of a company, right? And you write a tell-all book about the people in your company 
whilst you're still the CEO mm. of it, right? It doesn't make any sense. Mm. Uh, what kind of morale are you trying to build in your particular company if you want to consider a university a company? How do people start trusting you later on to say, if I say something to you in confidence mm. as the vice chancellor, how do I know at the end of your term you're not going to release part two of your book, <laughs> further deliberating on the issues that we discuss internally? So that was my first issue, like just weird vice chancellor mm-hmm. move to make. The second one is, why write a book to settle old vendettas that you have with people? Mm-hmm. Right, so this is the views that I've been getting from a lot of students who got named in the book, mm. academics who got named in the book, academics who were what's subtweeted in the mm. book as well. Of you are now using your platform and using the platform of the protest of using this catalyst moment in the country to now fight old vendettas that you have with other people. And I think that's also I think it's a valid criticism whether you read the book or not. What has been fascinating though is seeing the reaction of certain student politi- uh, politicians, right? Both current and ex, who both got exposed because um, you piece things together and you're just like, oh, I know who was at that meeting. And it creates that awkward tension um, because he was trying to destabilize the student movement in one way or another by exposing these things. Now, these are my three views on this book. I don't have an issue with him writing the book, right? I think vice chancellors should be able to write whatever they want to write, right? As long as there's someone who's going to come out and say, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. Yeah, on the new baseline. Right? <laughs> that someone will call you out on your bullshit. Mm-hmm. Right? You say what you need to say, but when someone else calls you out on whatever lies that you're spewing, if someone calls you out to say, I'm fact-checking you, if someone says that you can't be the savior of the university and the perpetrator of violence at the same time, mm-hmm. you can't come back and be like, no, but why are you criticizing me? Um, so in my mind, it's a feeling that I've been getting. It's what I heard at the last book launch. It's how students have been feeling when they engage with them. Of you can't have it both ways. Okay, oh. so that's that yeah, on that. But moving on from him. <laughs> okay, so you wrote this book called "Breaking a Rainbow, Building a Nation," and one of the key, 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 key <laughs> questions. Um, that you try and tackle in the book is this idea of double consciousness, right? Mm. Um, and Alma and I have been both intrigued uh, by, obviously, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois yeah. and the, his scholarship around double consciousness. Mm. But explain to us how you use the idea of double consciousness in, 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 in elevating your larger thesis, because your thesis will come true, but we just want to you know, chip away at these other little bits that you're doing. Yeah, so... I mean, Panache, Panache is a fantastic... I've never met Panache in person, but I'm the hugest fan of her. She's fantastic. Like, like, listen to her podcast. Because right? <laughs> I just like follow everything that she says. It's like, oh, you keep just dropping dimes. And her Ruth first lecture, I talk about it in the book, mm. was a very pivotal moment for me for two reasons. One, she interviewed me for that Ruth first lecture, but didn't tell me it was for the Ruth first lecture. I kind of found out when I was listening and oh, reading it, and I saw my name there. I'm like, wait, what's, what's going on here? Um, but she deals with this question of what do you do with this growing group of individuals in the country who are dealing with what Duval would call this double consciousness conflict, right, of I am black, but in this nation, there's different types of black that white people will see, right? It's the, you have made it, you're the B black, you speak like this, you hang out with us, and then there's you are the poverty-stricken black who can't really speak English that well, right? And the point that I was trying to say is, like, how do I now elevate this discussion and say, well, this group is now politicizing themselves, right? They are no longer going to be the objective of, or the object of someone else's study. They're actively using their own conflict as a mechanism of surviving in society, both for the good and the bad. Um, and I was trying to, I was dealing with it myself. Um, I read, like, a, a critique of the book where someone is like, he's dealing with this himself. I was like, yeah, every single day. Right? Because it never just disappears. Some days I feel really, really good. Other days I'll be in a room and I'm just like, I just feel that I am not good enough to be in this room. And it comes and it goes. But I was trying to understand how this double consciousness functions within the university protest. Right? Within the conflict that happens every single day in a feminine session. How certain people's privileges <coughs> will allow you to elevate yourself in the protest quite arbitrarily. Um, how someone who was never a student leader before, the next day becomes a student leader, and the only rationale that I can pick up from it is that because they have a car, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Because they can transport people from A to B, 
they can transport other student leaders from this location to another location, all of a sudden they become a student leader and you're thinking to yourself, is this the world that we live in? Um, so that's why I really wanted to start off there and the first chapter kind of like elucidates how it functions in society. Um, but I hope it gives a good way of understanding that the protest wasn't just this blanket mm. approach to what it meant to being black. Mm. It wasn't a blanket approach of we just understand phenomenon in one particular way, but there were these undercurrents informing decisions. We're taking a short break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. So we like to just give our listeners a hint of what lies ahead of them when they yeah. actually buy the book, because our listeners actually buy books. Yes. Um, so we'd like you to please, and for those of you who are here who have your Bible, you can uh, turn to chapter two, and um, you're going to just read from page 22, for instance. Yeah. And the title of the chapter is The Curious Case of 1652s and South Africa's Paradox. Yeah, cool. My name is a political compromise. Whenever I'm referred to as Hotsi, it's a subtle reminder to me of what it means to give up a piece of yourself. Something as fundamental as understanding why my name is a political compromise can give insight into how and why youth politics in South Africa is changing and where the motivations that continue to drive student protests come from. The name Hotsi isn't even a name. It's a random combination of letters with no meaning, no history, no culture, and no sense of something bigger than myself. It would be wrong to simply say it's a nickname. No. A nickname implies some form of negotiation, a negotiation in which some agreement is met in which both parties are satisfied. This negotiation may be jovial, considered, or even confrontational, but in the end, a nickname becomes your identifier. Khotsi is emblematic of the power struggle in which an eight-year-old willingly gave up his identity in a bid to find acceptance amongst his peers. The same power struggle continues to play out within broader society. It is a struggle with a group of individuals in the country who can be best described as 1652s and, in particular, white people, a colloquial term students use for white people. My full name is Rihotso Fetsi Chigani. The name was given to me by my mother as her own form of political commentary within our family. It means we are satisfied, and it signaled that I would be the last child she would bring into the world, into this world. But in 1999, that name was changed to Hotsi, which, which is a wholly butchered version of the original with no connection to the political tale the original told. The moment I gave up my name was the moment I fell victim to the curiosity of 1652s. This is not a fate unique to me. Black South Africans experience these moments where you find yourself compromising your identity because of your need to find approval from a 1652 in many ways. A good way to describe it is like seeing the world through a kaleidoscope of discrimination. Though the form of the discrimination may change and seem disorientating at times, the pattern is continually repeated and always recognizable. The emergence of hashtag must fall politics was the result of students rejecting the urge to appease the curiosity of 1652s and their desire to hold on to the belief of a rainbow nation. It's quite a powerful paragraph that you've just read. And I think that in reading this, a lot of people who've had sort of the Model C experience yeah. can relate to a lot of the microaggressions and the problematic behavior of white people, even before you have a language for what's happening you can tell that this yeah. is concerning you know and in the book you undergo a journey so you you speak about the politics behind fees and spore but there's also a journey that you undertake yeah. um and that results in your own sort of damascus moment, <laughs> want to have a better word. and i'm really curious for, uh, for you to take us through the journey of realizing that there is an unfair power dynamic that exists and what that means for you 
and that aha moments that you have as a university student? Yeah, I mean language. It's it's so interesting that you said that you said language, finding the language to understand your situation, because I always describe that Rosemus Fall was extremely important because it gave students on mass the language to describe how they were feeling, right? So they already knew how they were feeling, right? If you're being discriminated against, you don't need someone to explain to you how you're being discriminated against, right? You understand that. But the person who is discriminating against you might not understand the language that you're using, right? Mm -hmm. And Rosemus Hall became that tool where across the board, you gave students the language to say, I now know how to explain my particular pain, I know how to explain my particular experience, and I can tell this person what's happening essentially. But to get to that point is extremely difficult. Mm. Right? It's it's not an easy path. Right? Because at first the first step is that you have to acknowledge that there's something weird about about how the world functions. But there's something weird about being black in a white space and just being arbitrarily being discriminated against. Right? It's just you have to be able to accept that this is not a norm. Right? But to accept that this is not a norm is then to especially in a Model C context or an IEB school, to confront the friends you've been friends with for years, right? To say, I'm gonna call you out when you talk nonsense. Now, I had a particularly weird experience where I went to a very diverse school that did the Rainbow hey, Nation. Rainbow Nation yeah, right, they did the Rainbow Nation project the way it was supposed to be done, right? But then there's a problem with that because you, then you enter society and you're just like, wait, no one else no one else was doing this. And you just get hit over and over again. A lot of graduates from my particular school will always talk about this. Like they get into university and they're just like, oh shit, this is the reality. So mine was during my gap year, right? So didn't get accepted into any university I applied for, fun times that. And I went into like my year thinking, cool, I've got all these skills, it's gonna be fantastic. And over and over again, I kept experiencing weird discrimination, right? Because I'm not protected by my school. Um, I started experiencing white people treating me, white people I didn't know, I never like talked to them before, but treating me like I was less than. And then I went to UCT, and tutorials, man, you gotta love tutorials. That just, that assumption that you don't know something. And in your mind, you think, they're like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I just had a rough night though, so I don't feel like talking in this lecture, <laughs> right? But the problem about individuals who come from a Model C background, right, is that, problem is not the right word, the challenge that they face is that they get into that context, such as UCT, and they can assimilate in certain respects. There are certain blows that you can take. There are certain punches where you're like, mm, cool, this punch doesn't affect me because, you know what, I've got access to a computer, right? If someone is saying, why didn't you do this tutorial because you had no access to the internet or you've never used Excel in your entire life, students who come from an IEB background don't have to deal with that problem. It's not a punch that will take them down. But with enough punches, you get worn out. Mm -hmm. And students, particularly from my background at UCT, eventually said, there's an entire generation that's been worn out. We don't want to be the generation that's been worn out. And there's that fight back. So it's a challenge. It's a journey. It's not an easy journey in any respect. Um, but it's one that I think is worth taking. Because those who don't get stuck in this quagmire of always asking, how do I appease a white person in the room? Um, and that's a sad situation to be in, I think. So one of the, I don't know, I want to say challenges, I don't know, but um, you speak a lot about, in the book you speak a lot about like queer antagonism that happened in the movement, mm -hmm. particularly Roads Must Fall and how people were, like queer voices and particularly queer voices and black women were not elevated, were not included, you know, patriarchy was rife, yeah. you know, it was running the day. But there's an interesting thing that, I don't know if you do it intentionally or not, where when you speak about trans people and transgender women in particular, you use X, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's certain parts where you use an A. So I want to know if that is an intentional thing that you did, because it was really bothering me, because I yeah. mean, I don't, for someone else reading the book, it may feel like it's trans antagonism because you, you are, you're classing trans women with an X, but cis women you put an A. So it's like making the distinction between womanhood when they've been fighting yes. against this uh, exclusion. So I yep. wanted to know why that was. Yeah, so it's a fantastic question. No one's asked me that before. Um, so when it came to certain political groupings within the protest, I tiptoed over groupings that I didn't feel that I could write about 
but I wanted to respect at the same time, if that makes sense. Because mm -hmm. you can't tell the tale without mentioning that there were trans women in the movement. Right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to erase people from it. In my mind, I was thinking, can I find a balance from this? Can I find a balance that makes sense? So explicitly decided that I want to use X. Right? Mm -hmm. to show that there's effort there mm -hmm. not for my own benefit to be like pat me on the back but just that I want to respect as much as possible but there are certain situations where so for instance when I talk about the minute by minute of what was happening in the protest right in my mind because everyone was involved in that situation I choose to use A when I talk in general okay but when I talk specifically I use X now that might be a mistake um, it might be an issue, but it was my way of attempting to try and cross that boundary I don't think many people were trying to do, um, but also highlighting moments of theoretical thought and moments of intense day, blow-by-blow blow moments. Um, so I'm not perfect at it at all. So I wish, for me personally, yeah. I wish there was a, 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 a paragraph making that explanation yeah. because I mean it would just feel like as if you are making the exclusion that trans women sought to yeah. dismantle right so you're like okay I'm talking about these group of women and I'm talking about these other group of women so yeah. for lots of people it's like because in the beginning I thought it was maybe a mistake and then as I realized, as like, actually, on. no, <laughs> what's going intentional. on intentional. Yeah. So like, and it was really bothering me. So yeah. I, I'm glad that I, I sort of get where you're coming from. But yeah. I, I'm still saying like a lot of people who read the book will not necessarily be comfortable oh, with the way enough. in which it was used. And, right? I, and I think that's valid because you can see where the, where the bias stays. Right. So there's one phrase, we actually read it there, where I use the difference between the 1652s and then there's white people and then there's white people. And I purposely took some time to kind of explain the difference between exactly, these. Yeah. Yeah. so yeah. I can see yeah. where you're coming yeah. from. Yeah. Where I took the time to explain there's a difference between all these different terms, but I didn't use that for trans women in particular. And I think that is a valid criticism to have. So I just yeah. had so that for, for the reprints. Yeah. <laughs> for the reprints, reprints. I'm going to come back and be like, hey, <laughs> so slight revisions. <laughs> so um, speaking of the distinction, so. Yep. I mean, you spoke, the, the, the points of the book is the politics behind the Feasons for movements, the yep. must for movements, not just Feasons for. Um, and there are interesting commentaries that you make about politics as it relates to individual party politics and to the yep. people's lived experiences, right? And for me, I, I'm very curious about the resolution that you've come to, the conclusions you've come to for yourself, right? And having had to navigate for example, the loyalty to a party which may not necessarily be loyal to you and your politics in that moment. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you all know you read that book and agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, I mean, there was there was a very poignant sort of memory that you that you recount where the students there's there's the incidents in Parliament and uh, there's like public order policing and there's all of the stuff happening and people being arrested. And the speech continues, right? Yep. The speech continues as though nothing has happened, right? And the ruling party continues, right? There's just business as usual. And for me, I was very curious about the resolutions you've then come to post that having been part of this, what really strove to be a non-partisan movement um, with the feelings and the allegiances that you yourself may have held yep. and what it means to reconcile your personal politics with what have previously been long-held politics of your own and what that means for you. Yeah, so there's always this debate. So I've been oh, I've been fighting with Sasuke and ANC for like the longest time. I, I Sometimes I feel like I'm their chief internal antagonizer <laughs> among student issues um, because I grew up in a very politicized household um, and an ex-girlfriend of mine actually highlighted this point to me where someone asked her, why does Fotsi always support the ANC when they do all this manure all the time? And her response to him was, because he grew up in it, right? He grew up in a household that idealized this particular grouping and then fought for that idealized thing. I'm not just talking about like my dad, this is my uncles were MK vets. My aunts made sacrifices so that my uncles could do what they needed to do, etc. So I have this very idealized view of the ruling party that I defend vehemently against people who take against it. And then Fees Must Fall happened. Well, I was like, but this makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> like, you could have this idealized view, 
But this idealized view won't ever come into fruition if you allow the people who will sit in parliament while students are being shot outside to continue to be in parliament. It makes absolutely no sense, right? So now your idealized view gets shattered. The question I ask myself is, well then, do I become an independent? Um, do I just meander? Do I find a new political home? And I struggled. Personally, I struggled to find a new political home and I came back to my house and I was like, I'm not ready to do this, but I'm ready to fight to make this the idealized version that you guys need. Not what you believed in the past, but what you need now. Um, and that's where I kind of sit with my life. When it came to the politics, my fear of being a non-partisan, I always have this phrase, some people might know it, is party politics, completely understand it. Because I can predict what another party is going to mm. do. Right? You hold these views, I can kind of understand where they're coming from. People politics can get very frustrating. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes someone might disagree with you because they just don't like you. Right? There's nothing else informing that position. They just don't like you, so they're going to disagree with you. And the question then becomes, can you lead a movement with that type of politics? Mm. And in some cases, huge success. In other cases, it doesn't work at all. Um, I stick on the side of understanding party politics, understanding my own political position, and being comfortable with it, and being comfortable that these huge contradictions, but being able to say, I acknowledge the contradictions exist, how do I fight to eradicate them? And can I? I mean, talking about loyalty, to the party. To the uh, there is an interesting sort of thing that you do in the book where you sort of speak about being angry to your dad and we, we, we know who your dad is, you know, yeah. uh, for those who don't know who his dad is. Khotsafeti um, is the son of Frank Chigani. And so I'm really interested in that tension because I don't feel you explored it enough in the book and that may <laughs> have been intentional. Yeah. So the direct question is, are you angry at your father? And how are you reconciling <laughs> your, yeah. the, the way the mass four movements played out and the relationship that you have with someone who is loyal to the party? Yeah. But also just in addition to that, I think that your father is, but it's also just the, the metaphorical relationship between really what is the younger generation and the older generation and this feeling that you describe of them having jobbed the baton and the younger generation always having to pick to pick it up so perhaps just to explore not only the the feelings or the relationships that you hold with your father but also just as a metaphor for the relationships between older the older and the younger generation because i think yep. that the must for movements really encapsulated the way that young people were feeling about about older people and the ways in which they've really jobbed the baton over yep. and over again so I do not hate my father in any way. <laughs> I actually love my father quite deeply because my dad created a space where you could have a very frank conversation about the decisions that they made. In frank. The <laughs> so he would always open it up, right? And it was only when I became, so only when I started going to university, I started studying public policy, was I able to like come back home and be like, okay. So now I am, I am now equipped <laughs> with knowledge about the bad decisions you made, right? I can't even blame anyone else, I can blame you, about the decisions you made from like 1994 up until your removal, your resignation, whatever it was in 2009, right? And my dad was completely open to it because he's never been the type of person to be like, you young person don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So whether this is the decision that they made around the AIDS policy, mm. the decision that they made around 1996, when it came to the sunset clauses, and accepting that we're gonna go with the sunset clauses, we're gonna do here, it was a very open discussion. Mm -hmm. And I love him for that. Mm. Because when you get out of that context, the discussion between older generations and younger generations doesn't work like that. Yeah. Right, so I, I I hate the term intergenerational dialogue mm -hmm. it's never a dialogue, right? It it's is like the old people yeah, telling you this well, is what must be done. And you don't know. Yeah. The young kids don't <laughs> understand. You are never, the worst thing is that you are never in the struggle. So how could you possibly know? And I heard last year there was a Fismis 4 person who was just like, no, we had our own struggle. We now understand what it means to sacrifice for the great, to sacrifice your future for the lives of others, mm. right? Like we now fully understand what that means mm. and to take that decision. But these dialogues don't happen with the older generations because they stick, they're stuck in their positions. So fantastic conversation I had with Joel Neshitenze. He's like the 
intellectual of the ANC. I don't know if he's still the intellectual of the ANC, but he just flat out was like, I don't like your book. I was like, why? Because he's like, because you guys, you think you know everything, you don't listen to us. I was like, that is not a valid criticism <laughs> of the book, right? Just because we haven't listened to you, it doesn't mean you must then disregard all our views. Because you have thousands of people who went onto the streets of the country, and my supervisor makes this point that not many people make, not even students, that there are very few examples in the world right, where protests will start on a Monday with one demand, and on the Friday of that same week, the president is on national television giving in to that demand. Yep. Like, it doesn't happen. Right? So an entire generation was able to do this. You have to listen to them at that point. And if you don't listen to the ones in the university, who knows what will happen once that anger leaves the university and is mobilized in other areas. Mm -hmm. So you also do... I'm particularly interested in, in the form of the book as well. Yeah. So um, the book is very academic. Yeah. Um, heavily researched, you know, the footnotes, and I love <laughs> footnotes, so like the footnotes are fantastic. But I'm trying to know who did you write this book for, right? I know that when you think about James Baldwin, James Baldwin says you don't write a book for a particular audience, but there must be, you know, you say you, write, you wrote it for five people, yeah. but there must be an audience that you wrote it for. And I feel it's not in some ways the fees must fall people, no. uh, because it's alienating in the language. But then a second related question to that is that I'm wondering if the extensive research that you've done in this book is how, you know, black academics and black literature has been treated. So if you had written a tell-all account about Fees Must Fall, someone was going to be like, where are the statistics? Where are the stats? Where is the academic? Where is this? Is that also one of the reasons you decided to write it this way? So yeah. that people don't come for you with the, with the where are the receipts, basically? Yeah. So... I was in like full-on academic mode when I first started the book and that kind of just like just rolled over chapter by chapter as I went in but the other big concern I had was that I don't want to speak on behalf of other people right and I don't want it to seem as if and sometimes I succeed sometimes I don't of this is the only narrative of Fees Must Fall right and this is the this is the gospel truth of what happened because then people would come at you right because there's various different views, there's different, various different narratives about the protests, um, some that I fundamentally disagree with, um, but I can't argue with because that's the advantage. Yeah. Right? So I was like, research as much as possible to eliminate as many of my personal biases coming into something. So for instance, I want to talk about how protests existed in the university system from the late 90s. Right? Now I can either just say that, oh, previously disadvantaged universities used to protest, but then you're, you're denying them that history. Mm. So I say, let me come back and let me give it that history so then someone can go off and find themselves. So that was one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. The other academic one was, yeah, I don't want people... It was that academic mode, like, black academics always have to, like, protect themselves, yeah. right? We always have to, like, justify what you're writing. And I fell in for that trap, but I enjoyed it, right? Because now I know if anyone does question it, it will never be questioning around oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. The question would be like, no, you haven't researched yourself. Mm. You know nothing about what he's talking about. And the audience isn't for students, right? It was never designed for students currently in class. The actual audience were young professionals, mm -hmm. right, who've just entered the workplace, who are asking, who are now beginning to ask the questions, right? They fell into the trap of, I was radical in university, then I came out of university, and then this protest happened, and then they attacked students. And I realized, they were disjointed, right? Once you enter the working world, you become disjointed from your university life. Mm -hmm. You stop attaching yourself to those ideas and you fall into the trap of like, oh, they must be hooligans mm. or they're perpetuating violence. And I wanted to give them an opportunity to say, here's a way of understanding exactly what happened if you want. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Here's a way of helping you understand what you are going through through university. And hopefully at the end, here's a reason for why you shouldn't assimilate into the workplace. Mm -hmm. right? You shouldn't assimilate into our society and just accept it as a normal society that we live in. Um, I also didn't write it for students because I want students to write their own stories. It's like my big impact. I am waiting for like someone to just come out and tell, just write their own book about what happened because I'd be fascinated to see their opinions. Mm. So... There's, a, there's something that you said which is very interesting, just speaking about the narrative, right? And you yeah. write about 
black pain as it relates sort of to identity politics, right? So who gets to tell the stories of black pain and how do they get to tell these stories, right? Yeah. And I mean, I'm also very curious on your own reviews or your own feelings about that, right? Because there's a, there's a conversation to be had about who gets to tell the stories of pivotal moments in history, right? Yeah. And which vantage points they get used, you yeah. know? Um, and black pain is something that, that comes up often, right? It feels, in fact, in the other feasible discussion that we were having, no longer is, there was a whole conversation about a scene in which one of the, the protesters almost says, like, this is a performance, we must perform. And it feels like even in our pain, we must perform. You know, there's a performance that, that has to be made. So I just, I want your reflections on, on black pain and what that meant for you and ownership of that in writing this particular book. Yeah, so I think I know what you're referring to in the book, but let me start about myself when it relates to black pain. I never had the language of black pain until Rose was four, right? I could conceptually understand what was going on, right? But I was never given the language. This is where that language then comes into place, right? I was involved in student politics for three years, quite intensely, for three years before Rosemansville happened. And there was never a big meeting where the phrase black pain was used, right? There was always like a synonym for it of some sort. And I remember in one of the first, the first time I truly understood it was a friend, Maskole, who, after the screening of Minor Shot Down, hmm. very pivotal moment, kicks all the white people out, essentially. I won't tell the story, it's in the book. Um, but his argument was, I don't feel like I can unpack this in the space the way I truly want to do it. Yeah. And I felt exactly the same. Mm. I remember sitting in the corner and being like, I feel exactly the same. Because it's painful. Like, what I just watched is ex an extremely painful experience. So, for me, I understood it as black pain is only something that an individual can understand for themselves. Uh -huh. Right? You can talk about it at a high level, you can motivate it at a high level, but you can only truly understand it as an individual because of your own perspectives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? But when it does get used at a higher level, it becomes an interesting tool for telling stories. I remember, so I love Tatupula. Tatupula is one of the most fantastic student leaders um, that has come out of UCT. But I remember at the time, I said at the beginning of Rosemary's Fall, Tatupula is soon going to become the, the voice of this protest, right? Because she ticks what people would think is the checkbox, yeah. right? Of, of disadvantage, yeah. right? She checks all those boxes, and people got into the mindset of because she checks all the boxes, therefore she must become a leader, right? But the problem that that has is that you don't create that leadership because she's a brilliant leader. You create a facade that when she starts speaking, certain people will be like, ah, but do you really know what's going on, right? Do you really fully understand? And that's, so my issue is not how you politicize or mobilize around black pain, but it's the fake mobilizing around it. Mm. I'm going to give, I'm going to talk about black pain, but to check boxes so that I protect myself from being attacked. Right? And that's what a lot of males fell into that trap. So the protest that failed at Vitz, uh, beginning of 2016, was that, where they came out and they said, no, but... We, we don't want females. But we don't want... Women. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, we, but we organized this discussion. We had a few females in the secret meeting in Pretoria. What's, what's the problem? And the females said, no, but that's... You're using it as a facade. It's a mm. fake. You're mm. not truly understanding what it means. And those are the contentious things that you have to deal with. Because it happened a lot. Um, where people use the facade of black pain. Um, not intentionally, not like they were vilifying in any way but they used it to gain power so that they wouldn't have to interrogate themselves. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's why it has to be an extremely personalized aspect for someone. Speaking of like interrogations, yeah. to, there's an interrogation that, I mean, I would have liked to see a little bit more of in the book, yeah. and that's the ways you discuss the failures of the must fall movements, or yeah. why certain movements failed, and you speak about sort of the problematic, this toxic masculinity and this hyper-masculine environment that was in but you don't really go as deeply as I think a lot of us would have liked to see I mean I understand the idea that there are stories that yeah. are not yours to tell I was literally going to say but, that <laughs> <laughs> but I think in a, in a book that also then has a criticism of certain movements or certain things uh, I would have liked to see a little bit more of you speaking about the problematic ways in which men particularly in the must form movements behaved and yeah. why that then contributed to 
to the failure of those movements. I mean, I guess the question really is, is on reflection, what should have been done differently in terms of yep. of the men in the movement, right? Because yes, everyone was quoting Fernand. So I was I was in varsity when Fees Must Fall happened, and I, and I remember it was like a big aha moment for a lot of people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great because people who previously had not encountered like the the work of of black feminists or, or black scholars in that way were were then exposed to some force to rethink and be able to put a name to the experiences that they were having at the time. But there is this continual exclusion of the woman in Fees Paul, yep. you know, and it's a criticism we've had of two of the books that we've that we've reviewed, you know, and I mean you've you've said that this was a failing on their part and probably led to the failure, but didn't really go quite into depth for it. So now I'm I'm curious obviously about yep. your own sort of resolutions post that because you've now written the book The Book is Arms. Yeah. Um you've had time to reflect. In yeah. <laughs> on, on on this book, you know, and the problematic politics. Yeah, so it it wasn't it wasn't my story to tell, and why I say that is so. When I did my interviews, I got some insight into some really deeply troubling things that happened, but it wasn't my story to tell on behalf of that person, if that makes sense. So, roads must fall becomes so I can give a highlight of why this is not my story to tell. So the downfall of Rhodes Must Fall is precipitated by moments of sexual violence in the movement, right? That get masked, right? So this is public knowledge where one particular guy, Tumani, gets accused of sexually assaulting one of the prominent student leaders. And the men gathered around him and said, how could he possibly do this, right? He's also the face of the protest, right? Mm -mm. But once you don't deal with that, that moment, it gives the impression that this will be fine. But I think even further to that, yeah. there's a lot of complicity that even people are participating in, right? So yep. one of the other issues that I had is by not naming it, it could be as if you, you continue the complicity, yep. right? So naming the violence is in, this is the broader spectrum of what happened and even you know, intellectually masturbating about like what some of those reasons are about yep. why the movement happened in the way that it happened. Because yep. I think it's important for us, the people who are doing this, to name the violence, you know, right? Yep. Naming the violence is also a political act. Yep. So um, I would have really enjoyed more of the naming because yeah. you do speak about these figures and sometimes you don't... you. You, right, you acknowledge right. their faults. Yes. You're like, uh, this is a controversial person. Yeah. But honestly, this is uh, a sexual abuser, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's not a, a law thing where innocent versus proven until guilty. It's like, yeah. actually, we know for, for in truth that there are certain things that did happen and yeah. we have to name them from what happened. Right? Yeah, so I mean... But also to then also not contribute to the erasure of those events having taken place, right? Because yeah. I think the problem with with archiving history or like retrospective looks, right, is that mm. hindsight's the 2020 in a lot of respects, right? Yeah. You are able to be like, ah, we should have, but we didn't. But what that, what, like Klopfner was saying, using the correct language of naming things affords you retrospectively is that it avoids the erasure and the, and the minimizing of very significant events, right? So yeah. minimizing the trauma of these black women who Often we're at the forefront, right? These women were at the forefront and then came home to watch Baby Should in Safe Spaces. And then mm -hmm. you come home to a Zanya house and you're sexually assaulted, yeah. you know? And, and we have to name that, that assault for what it is. We have to name, or else there's a secondary erasure that takes place. And I think that's really what the concern was, this potential secondary erasure, because yeah. everybody's sort of spoken about those kind of events, but spoken around it and not been able to name, like, and say, this person was a sexual abuser and this person participated in the active erasure of yep. black women from the recording of this of this event and has then gone on to receive numerous accolades and to whatever in ways that black women have not been afforded because of the ways in which we archive history. Yeah. So I mean I use not, not to cut you off. No, no, no. But I use so are you reference list. Mm. So I talk about them in the book yes. of saying I now take the stance of sexual violence on campus should be treated as guilty until proven innocent. That is the only way you'll possibly stop sexual violence on campus. Huh? If someone cheats on a test, plagiarism, cool, go back to your innocent until proven guilty. But because of the prevalence of sexual violence on campus, we can't take that as a norm. Right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can't change the entire system. Mm -hmm. right? It's not like the one 
um, investigation that is skewed. It's an entire institution of how you investigate sexual violence on campus. When it came to naming names in the protest, in my, and maybe I must reread it, I thought I had named individuals, so I used particularly that failed protest beginning yeah. of 2016. Right, so money goes on radio and gets slaughtered on radio, <laughs> essentially. Right, he tried yes. his best, but they exposed him, <laughs> yeah. right, for being a patriarch, yeah. um, essentially. At the, at the end of the day, you can name all the, he was a patriarch, at the end of the day, who was perpetuating some form of violence. And what I wanted to showcase was, Sexual violence happened in the protest, and it happened in many different respects, right? So I remember one particular interview, um, I won't name my name here, but when I was interrogating, like, how did Rhodes Must Fall get to Shackville? How did Shackville happen as a moment? Mm. And her argument was so simple. She says, all the top, the, the smartest woman in the movement, the organizers that had dragged this movement for months, no longer wanted to be part of Rhodes Must Fall whilst these men were present. Mm. So there was just a leadership deficit mm. at the wrong time of the year, right? That precipitated events. And she came as like... So black women stopped yeah. doing the work, basically. They were just like... Stopped carrying oh. everyone. And then you just, you get a moment where things escalate, where the minds that had kept everything in control were like, we refuse to be part of it. Remember, these are the same women who kicked men out twice, mm. right? I remember the, the little Twitter announcements were like, We've now taken over the Rose Miss Fall Twitter account. No men are welcome in the movement. That had happened twice before, and no one had learned their lesson. Mm. And she attributes that, mm. that failure for people to learn their lesson, to see the explosion. Mm. Yet she's one of the people who suffered the consequences mm. of that explosion, nonetheless. So you can see that double erasure mm. continues to happen. Mm. So I suppose the final question, and we obviously left it for, for the final question, <laughs> is the question that you ask yourself in the book. Mm. Can coconuts be trusted with the revolution? No. And why do you say that? Because of Rockets and Bryanston. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure how many people know of Rockets and Bryanston. Rockets and Bryanston is one of the most fantastic spaces to see the black elite, or those who want to ascribe to becoming the black elite, spending their money and showing how popular they are. Right? I am a victim of Rockets and Branson. It's a really nice place to be on a Sunday night. The question I ask myself is, can we trust that grouping who have both political power in the country, right? they're growing with their economic power in the country, right? and socially, they've gotten to a point where they don't care. Right. In their minds, like I've gotten to a point where white people don't affect me, don't affect my daily bread mm -hmm. anymore. And these individuals, I don't think, when pushed to the edge, will be able to say, I'm willing to sacrifice my own privileges for the greater benefit of the country. And why I make that analysis is that, from my particular perspective, and people will challenge me on this, I saw it happen in the protests. Right? I saw it happen in the protests when the groups that had the economic power, they had the political power, once they got what they wanted, Exited, and there's two clear examples of this, right? It is when government comes out and it's like 120,000 and below, essentially you'll have free education. And it's like, nah, that's not a thing. And they went to 200,000, nah, it's not a thing. And they went to 400,000, and the protest kept on going. Once the figure hit, if your family has 600,000 per annum, you will then get essentially free education. And I remember sitting back and thinking, 600,000 rand per annum. It's a huge number, right? But then, cool, we may as well then keep on going, that everyone should get free education, and then the energy stopped. Right? And the question is, who then got what they want? So that's the first example. And the second one was a brilliant political move by the vice chancellor, we won't name, right? Where he says, we're gonna have a referendum on campus, right? We're gonna vote, do you want to continue with exams? What that vote really was, was a proxy vote. Yeah. Right? So do you agree with Please Miss Ford or not? And when you look at the numbers, Right, if we had just had to use this on race, there are not enough white people at WITS to make up that majority vote. Like, there's just simply there's not enough. So there is a grouping who also came to the conclusion that we're done. Now, I don't know who that grouping is. I can only suspect and hypothesize. And my hypothesis is a lot of people who say, listen, now you're attacking my privileges now. Right? I don't know if I'm willing to sacrifice my academic life for the benefit of this big goal of free education. And for me, it's warning signs. And it happens in every society that goes through its liberation moment that there will be a class elite 
that will come out and betray the masses. And my question is, ask the questions now. You can be in a leadership position. There's nothing wrong with being in a leadership position, but you should be constantly interrogated of, I seem to double check that you're still with us to the bitter end, right? Are you still with us? And if you're not, cool, but don't be a leader of the movement. Mm -hmm. right? Don't put yourself at the forefront of it. Because at some point you're going to start making decisions that are based off your personal bias rather than the greater good of everyone else. So, at the Cheeky Natives, we have a very interesting rating um, mechanism. So what we do is we don't give people popcorn and stars. And just, <laughs> I mean, no. So what we do do is we have something called the Cheeky Natives Land Committee. And what the Cheeky Natives <laughs> Land Committee does is we sit... And we have very intensive discussions at this two-person committee at the top of that is not subject to any um, outside influence. And what we do is we apportion land to our authors. Oh, wow. Based on, on you know, how much we've enjoyed their book, what we think the book is likely to do, um, the importance of the book. So if we haven't enjoyed your book, you may possibly not get land. Oh, wow. Um, no pressure. <laughs> so, the clock on all on ice sites, and I mean, we've had the privilege of reading two of these most four books in, in quite close proximity to, to each other in terms of time. And I mean, when I was reading the book, I was telling him I had a lot of hallelujah moments because you have those moments of double consciousness where even as a, as a young black person, you can't really remember the first time that you were acutely aware of your blackness. Yeah. Um, but you've always known that you were black. For as long as you can remember, you've known that you were black or that you weren't white. Yeah, that cricket um, game for me. <laughs> that cricket game or, you know, like even as a child, you have an incident that points you, but you don't have the language to, to express it. Yeah. And I think that this book was so necessary. We need more books that archive and that, that speak to the experiences of, of pivotal moments in our history, right? So I don't think we've done a lot of archiving as black people in this country. And as a result, we've allowed a lot of our history to be written by other people. And I really, really enjoyed what Breaking a Rainbow and Building a Nation is do. I think it's, it's asking a lot of questions of people who enjoy certain privileges that they may or may not be ready to accept that they enjoy. Um, and so having had this discussion with the Tlokonon and I, we've decided that we're going to apportion you a piece of land in Parkers. Oh, and uh, when fantastic. you read the book, <laughs> when you read the book, we don't want to give away too much, uh, you'll realize that Parkers is particularly significant. Yeah. Um, it's a significant piece of land to apportion to Rikota Fetzi. So that's who we're giving, that's where we're giving you land. Nice go go forth, go forth and flourish. <laughs> Write more books. Write more books, call yeah. more, more of our of our coconuts to account. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much for writing this book and for archiving, you know, very important stories around Fees Must Fall. Um, as we said in the second edition, you know, perhaps do a bit more explaining in yep. certain respects so that we are all included in this conversation no, and in this archiving. And also, you know, deal a little bit more with the tension of your father, because I'm really interested <laughs> in that, like, write another book so about that. Right, write another book. Maybe um, so there's yeah. an idea. The, the idea for a second book, if, if they allow me to write a second book, would be conversations with my parents. Mm. So I'd be interested in that. So thank you very much, Cheeky Natives, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, please follow Rikhozofete uh, on Twitter. He is Khotsi22 on Twitter. Yeah. And Chikane on Instagram. Chikane R. On Instagram. <laughs> And um, thank you very much. We hope that when you have your second book, you'll call cool. us up again so we can do some more conversation. Yeah. And we wish you all the best uh, from the Cheeky Natives. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yay, thank you.